Thank you for listening to Animata Tangent. Sorry, I'm trying to be quiet. My wife was working super late last night, and I was sick yesterday, so I wasn't feeling well. And uh, she like she had to work in the morning, and then she went out and like got me stuff because I was sick, and then had an appointment, and then had to go back to work. She, bitches need their sleep, <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm trying to be quiet. Uh, this is my conversation with Sigmund Bloom from footballguys.com. Super, super awesome guy. We talk a lot about politics and football, basically. Yeah, I don't know. It was a great conversation. The guy's really cool. It's been really cool to like meet. I guess meet. I mean, I'm not meeting them, but I guess I am meeting them in a way. But it's been really cool to meet people that I look up to and appreciate their work and stuff that they're doing. And just about all of them have been really cool people, so that's great. Uh, I don't know. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. All right, cheers. That's a lovely, lovely voice. And I would be very upset with myself, though, if we didn't talk some football, and my friends would also be as well. So, So I'd like to leave that maybe for later, but I would yeah. like to dive into like actual stuff. Anything. Of, of real life. I, I, I'm a compulsive talker. I love interacting with people. So, I mean, you probably, I'm sure you know me at least some, somewhat from my show. My show is conversational too, and tang- I love and I'm on a tangent. We're always on a tangent of a tangent of a tangent, right? Mm-hmm. Like, life is what happens when you're making other plans, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly. Uh, I was actually just listening on the couch this morning, and I actually wanted yeah. to kick it off with this because uh, I'm from Cleveland originally. And, right. And. I wasn't sure, you know, I'm a big fan of yours, and I was like, ah, I know he's a Pittsburgh guy, so I hope he doesn't, like, trash it too bad. No. But, the, but the love and and the, the, the whole country has given, and I know it's so silly because it's basketball and whatever. Right. The joy. So, great opening. Yeah, yeah thanks. Yeah, man, let's do it. I'm happy to be, you know, I always am happy to be on. This is what I would do. If I could, I would do shows all day. Yeah. I just, it's, it's, it's so enjoyable. I'm glad we can give people something that helps the day pass. It helps our day pass. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I work at uh, Chrysler, and uh-huh. most of my day is listening to podcasts. About, yeah, you know, six hours a day. So nice. You know, when football season rolls around, football guys is great to have for because there's yeah, so I know. many hours. We're compulsive. Like, like I've always said, they don't encourage us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to kind of get some background on you and kind of figure out how how Sigmund became Sigmund. I guess. So, did you grow up in the Pennsylvania area? I did. Uh, I was born in Mount Lebanon in 1975, the year the okay. Steelers won their first Super Bowl. And we ended up in New Mexico from when I was about two until I was seven, which was very formative for me because, uh, to put it bluntly, I was living in a place where white people were the minority and Hispanic culture, especially native culture. We lived really close to the Acoma Pueblo. We knew the Acoma chief. Uh, it, it just it, it broadened my perspective. To, to be honest, as a kid, to, mm-hmm. to, I, we said the Pledge of Allegiance in Spanish. You know, this oh. was back in the early '80s, uh, and uh, it really broadened my perspective. And then we moved back to Pennsylvania when, in 1982. Okay. The Steelers at that point were bad. <laughs> this is like Mark Malone era Steelers, uh, and, and then graduated from high school there in '93. And along the way, I wanted to become the Pittsburgh Pirates play-by-play announcer. They tell you when you're a kid, you can do anything you want. That's what I wanted to do. Pirates were still good for a little while. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and they're getting back to their old ways. Anyway, and I went to Syracuse University because that's where sportscasters went. That's where sportscasters were made. Bob Costas, Marv Albert, Sean McDonough, Mike Tirico. Anybody in the sports broadcasting or broadcasting journalism in general, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting like three Syracuse people. Mm-hmm. You know, I do radio spots in Arkansas, and it's a Syracuse grad. You know, Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. Uh, but I became disenchanted with broadcast journalism. That's a whole other topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did love philosophy. Uh, I took a philosophy math class with me and a graduate student in philosophy and a math teacher who just took it for fun. Uh, and because of that, I was able to really engage with this philosophy professor, Jose Benardetti, who was old school analytical philosophy. And uh, it really it lit me up, uh, lit up my brain. So I finished out philosophy, didn't know what I wanted to do, became a fish head along the way. It was the mid-90s. <laughs> that was more my passion and my organizing principle of my life then. Uh, I had to do something after college. I went to law school here in Austin, Texas, mainly to have a reason to move to Austin, Texas, because of what I saw in Slacker, in the movie Slacker, Richard Linkletter. Basically, a lot of people do what they wanted to do, and they didn't really care if anybody noticed or anybody paid them for it. They just wanted to do what they wanted to do, and that sounded like me. It's a nonconformist haven. It's still, the, the kernel of it's there to change a lot. Everything's changed a lot. I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, and along the way, you know, I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer on the first day of law school, but I was able to ride out a, a scholarship there and be a professional student. I did take and pass the bar. I did work like most people did in the early 2000s in IT. If you had a, a brain that functioned well, uh, you were an analytical thinker, you could get a lot of work in IT. Okay. Did that for five or six years until that was not so rewarding. And by that time, the internet had made media democratic, and you could just put put up your shingle and do your thing. And if you gathered an audience, then you could create momentum. And as we can see now, it's like a, a niche and micro niche economy where if you have, say, a thousand people that are really into what you do, you can make a living on that. Whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, cookie cookie decorating. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like if you if you are really passionate about something and you can develop a group of people around you that share that passion. It's really quite an interesting time to be alive, and our economy has really changed from, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh steel mills, Mm -hmm. coal mines. My stepdad was a coal miner. Um, And now we're we're about ideas and communities and brands. Mm -hmm. So it's been quite a a journey, uh, and I have no idea what it's going to bring, but I know it's going to continue to change. Absolutely. So so you you became a lawyer really knowing full well you had no interest in it whatsoever – Right. And that that's I mean, you have to admit that that's not very oh, yeah. common. I mean, no. that's that's pretty crazy. <laughs> I wouldn't that, recommend it. Yeah, I, yeah, I would I wouldn't say so. So so how long did you practice law? Yeah. So quick story on that. Um okay. I tried so part of the reason that I I mean, don't go to law school to find out if you want to be an attorney. It's mm-hmm. not a good idea. You should have an idea of exactly how it fits in your life and your life plan, especially now when the jobs are drying up and it's more expensive than ever. But <clears throat> um my, I come from a family, family of attorneys. My father's also named Sigmund Bloom. He's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He, he retired a year or two ago. He practiced law for 54 years. And I used to hang out with him in the summer at his law practice. I saw it all, the criminal defense, family law, and things like that. Uh, and there was a time at the end of law school where I decided, the third year of law school, I was going to give criminal defense a go. <clears throat> because I'm a, I could be a crusader. I can be a true believer, mm-hmm. fight for the underdog and things like that. 
So they have a program at UT Law School, a clinic where you can have clients, you have a established attorney who gives you, they give you kind of a training wheels bar card where you have a bar card, but it's like a, a learner's permit and driving, like someone's vouching for you. And I had clients. Um, and I did actually argue successfully that a, a camping ban to basically keep the homeless off the streets here in Austin, this is 1999, 2000, was unconstitutional. So I, I, I tossed my little piece in there. I think eventually it did go all the way up to the Supreme Court oh, okay. and was found unconstitutional. You can't just make a law that says you're not allowed to sleep in public. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. They keep trying to find ways to, to have excuse to round up homeless people, and it's unconstitutional. That was my triumph. Um, on the other, on the flip side, I was a terrible defense attorney because I believed everything my clients told me, mm-hmm. and I couldn't negotiate. So those of you that have negotiated with me, like fantasy trades, like that's like the harshest bloom negotiator oh, okay. you're gonna get. I'm not a, I'm not, and that's not even harsh at all. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not. If I had a weak position, I had a lot of trouble posturing like I had a strong position, and maybe I could have grown into that. Um, but. Still, the law degree is a great thing to have. It's instant credibility in this culture. If you have a law degree, people think, well, if you say you can do something, then you can do it. And in the practice of law, you say a lot of things that you're not sure you can do. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. oh, I'll, it's a, I, I call it an open book profession. Um, so it, it gives you instant credibility. It certainly teaches you in, in what we do with fantasy football, like arguing both sides of an issue, like giving the best case. Because when you take the bar, a lot of the questions are like that. Like, this case is a dog, it's a loser. But what would be the best argument for the losing side? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so it helps you with those things. But, you know, at this point, I would say for most people, if you're thinking if you're thinking about going to law school out there, think about whether there's another path to what you're going towards that doesn't include law school because it's not a good deal anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'll save everybody out there. I've made this speech a few times. I'm going to save everybody out there $100,000 in three years and tell you the real underlying truth of a law school education. Everybody is making it up as they go along, and you can too. Mm-hmm. That's that's it. I mean, it's 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 every, you just make up. You just try to find the best reasons for what you want to happen anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny that you say that because my wife and I have talked recently about how it it almost seems like as cause I'm I'm 28, so I'm just starting to feel like an adult, right. really, to be honest, and. Uh, and I and I we were just talking about how it almost seems like everything everyone's just making it up as they go along. Mm-hmm. And it's and we had this false idea that that people had you know, they had know what they're talking yeah. about yeah. that they're like yeah. competent that they actually like, deserve the positions they have like it's like a meritocracy and everybody earned what they have. Yeah, and and not not mm-hmm. to be a jerk to the older generation, but also they had less of an idea because they didn't have the internet. So it's right. not like. What like uh, our furnace broke the first four months that we were living here, and I don't know anything about fixing furnaces, but you know Google search and like an hour and a half of work, I figured it out. Like I called my dad and I was like, "What would you have done?" So well, we had a big encyclopedia type situation, and so you know, where you think you know, I guess our parents are kind of these models in our head, almost you know, as God. So we just assume that they know everything. And as you're getting older, you're learning it. So, but it's n- nice to hear a guy like you can say, I had this, you know, I've heard you talk about being a lawyer before, and I think your wife practices law. Um, well, this is a, a scoop, okay? You're, you're, getting this, you're getting this scoop on the show, so I'll say, I'll clarify. Um, my ex-wife. Your ex-wife, okay. Well, scoop as of 2016. Those of you who listen to the show know me, I, I'm not trying to make my private life public, but I want to make sure that I'm accurate for the record. Good deal. Wow. Well, for all the Sigmund Bloom enthusiasts out there. Yes. Well, I don't really, I don't really want to ask questions about your ex-wife practicing no, okay. law. And so, um, 
as as a guy who's practicing criminal defense, did you watch Making a Murderer? I just saw parts of Making okay. a Murderer, but all of those narratives or the Jinx. I recommend everybody to watch the Jinx. Okay, I watched. I watched the Jinx. I'd I'd love to talk to you about that from a. Oh yeah. From well, a, you know, Dick DeGarren, Dick DeGarren, the main defense attorney for Robert Durst, was one of my law school professors. Oh really? And it was before that trial, and uh, DeGarren would fly in every Friday from uh, Houston to teach the class in Austin, and he would teach you like real criminal defense. So knowing DeGarren and taking his class, nothing that you see that comes up in that show surprises you. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 the main one of the main things he taught us was, and this is Texas, we're down here, Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The he needed killing defense. You know, it's a it's a very viable defense down here in mm-hmm. Texas. Um, Bernie, a tremendous movie. Like you want to Bernie, understand yeah. Texas, watch Bernie. That's mm-hmm. like, if you were to say like make the ten a list of ten movies to understand Texas. You know, mm-hmm. Bernie's on that list. Lone Star, Giant. Um, uh, um, what else am I? You know, the Texas, the one about the Texas cheerleader mom. I think with Holly Hunter. That's a good one. Uh, anyway, Bernie is on that list. Uh, Hands on a Hard Body, a documentary. That's a good one. G- getting off on a tangent here, but um, you know, you basically just argue that. Uh, this person that died wasn't really a good person, and it's not really a bad thing that they're dead. Uh, yeah. And otherwise, like using real psychology to get at uh, a jury, like, we could talk about, about jargon and law and arguing the law, mens rea, and things like that. But there's a real conversation that the jurors are picking up on. And if you can speak to that conversation, you're that's where that's how the cream rises to the top. And um, the jinx, I think, was a terrific example in the way that you know you can use kung fu in a courtroom and and put the burden back on the prosecution. When you say self defense, it puts a burden on the prosecution to prove that it wasn't self defense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when the only other person is dead, <laughs> yeah, hard to do that. That's a good point. But I mean, don't I mean, don't you think that's kind of the way the system's set up though? It's it's it's, it's forcing the prosecution. They have to prove right. that it happened, which, right. which makes sense. It does, and it's really interesting, too, because the prosecution then is resorting to – and this, for those of you that haven't seen the jinx, this isn't really spoiling it because the real the real reveal at the end of the jinx, you know, this that. probably happened. But watch it, everybody. Yeah. Watch, watch it, the it. jinx. Watch it. Um, so then the prosecution is now forced to make a similar sort of just appealing to, to your humanity. Like, come on. Mm-hmm. He chopped up the body. Mm-hmm. Are we really going to split hairs here? Are you going to believe the guy that chopped up the body? Yeah. Have you chopped up a body? Could you imagine chopping up a body? You know? Yeah. Um, so, again, you're just appealing to, like, you know, proof, reasonable doubt. Well, what's reasonable doubt? It's just you're a human being, and you appeal to your humanity and experience. And uh, I think that you're right that that's how the system works. But, of course, Durst gets into issues of equity. Like, you, you – um, equality, I'm sorry, equity, equality mm-hmm. in our culture, like like all everybody's equal before the law. Well, not really, because you think about like first class tickets on an airplane. Absolutely. You know? Well, there's first class justice system. Mm-hmm. And if you have the money, you go through a different justice system. Dave Chappelle did a really terrific thing on this during the most amazing Chappelle's show season two is one of the perfect things that we're mm-hmm. created in our lifetime where it was like the, the crack dealer and like the white collar criminal switched roles in the justice system. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I mean, you're right that it's how the system is set up, but it's kind of an 
open um, knowledge, I, I guess that we are okay with the idea that the more money you have, the more likely you are to find justice. And if you are a poor person or you're otherwise in a, a marginalized, underrepresented group, then you're less likely to get justice. And they're starting to be able to show this, like speaking of fantasy football kind of stuff, with data. You know, I think now there's. I'm not saying that the methodology is good, but they're starting to try to show like being this ethnicity or having this income level is is like having um, this many more years on your sentence. You Absolutely. Well, I so think they, I think. Go ahead. I was going to say I think they've even shown data based on sex that men are persecuted stronger than women. I think for the same crimes. Right. I, I'm right. pretty sure. But but even then, like I was just thinking about that when watching Making a Murderer because and this isn't spoiling anything. But it's a guy that, you know, they don't have loads of money and they own like a junkyard and he's going against the state and his right. cousin has to have a public defender. Mm-hmm. And and you just see like they're like, so did you talk to him this week? And, and his public defender said, I, I think I talked to him about seven days ago. And I think, man, if you had a lot of money, you'd be talking to your. Have you seen The Staircase? No, I haven't okay. seen The Staircase. Not to go on a, another tangent, but talk about another guy who just you get a crack defense team i mean they they are smart smart guys and they know what they're doing and so, and they know how to now in the case of you know some some of those cases they do get found guilty but man it it does seem like you can kind of buy your way not even completely out of jail but even just even a lesser sentence you know yeah. that, that that happens often so yeah or even just you know the case with the um stanford swimmer the recent one where it's like just status like who will go to bat for you um, oj simpson everyone's revisiting oj simpson yeah. cultural obsession again you know dating myself um i'm 40 but i don't think so the oj simpson like predated internet culture where in internet culture we get obsessed about something but we get obsessed about it for a day maybe a week more likely like a day or two maybe even an hour mm-hmm. oj simpson yeah. was like that for a year yeah, I can't imagine. I can't and, imagine. And it's back, and O.J. Simpson brings in a lot of issues of uh, money, but also race. Uh, and also, you have to take it in context on the heels of Rodney King. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, all, all of these things keep coming up, though, because, like you said, it's how the system works. Everybody understands that's how the system works. And I think we have something similar with healthcare. You know, mm-hmm. if you have, if you, if you, and it's kind of, I suppose we have a base implicit agreement, and I think not all of us agree on this, that if you, if you have if you have money, you deserve for things to be better, and if you don't, you deserve for things to be worse, like you should have worked harder or gotten more skills or something. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things we're, we're finally starting to argue out in the public square again, because I think we've argued this out in the public square before. It's how we got unions. It's how we got government robust government programs and things like that, and now we're arguing it again. Uh, but I think the justice system is one of the places where it's very present right on the surface, but we don't talk about it except in, in these, some of these cases like um, OJ. And even in that case, it gets muddled with a lot of other issues. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely understand what you're saying, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm a guy that, you know, I grew up in Ohio, just north of Akron, just about 10 minutes north of Akron, and I primarily white, like 90 probably 99% people were white. I mean, we had a graduating class of 500. I think we had one black kid in our class. And then I moved up here. My dad's my dad's plant closed, and you know, he worked at Chrysler's 
plant closed, so we moved up here. I ended up getting a job at Chrysler. I work with a lot of people from from Detroit. So this is the first time in my life I'd really been around another culture. And I used to have a very pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality until I got to know people that didn't have everything that I had in life. And I look at and I just go, hey, man, it's just it's 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 not fair for everybody. And it's hard. And we have to do our best to make it as fair as we can. It's, with, and it's hard out there. Yeah, it's, it's rough. really. And you're, you say you're 28. So you're just starting to get the feeling like your generation. And, and on behalf, you're, you're on the, the saddle between the two. On behalf of kids that are in college right now. I'm so sorry. Because we had, we were the last group. I'm 40. We were the last group to have like the deal, like go to college, get your first job, get a yeah. promotion, move up. You know, just just like the conveyor belt autopilot kind of life. Yeah. And now, you, and in some ways, it frees you up to to create a life that's truly your own. But now you have to, you have to kind of be, you have to be in the business of marketing yourself in the world now. You mm-hmm. know. Um, but but one of the things going back to what you were saying about meeting people and having your eyes open is it's hard out there. It's really hard. And you, you may have a support system of your family or something that makes you not have this nervous feeling that, hey, what happens if I have a bad break? If I get sick or if my wife gets sick or oh, yeah. my kid gets sick or, you know, one of us has like a mental breakdown or depression or something or whatever you just lose your job it's really ask people that are out there in the job market right now it's hard so if you fall on the wrong side of that that bad break and you don't have support you don't have people that have like extra rooms in their houses to let you and your family stay or people that can loan you money or assets that you can tap into it's almost impossible to get back on the other side now oh yeah Oh, it's yeah. really hard, and it's not because people aren't working hard enough. It's not because they haven't tried in the past. They haven't, they've done everything right, and it's very, very difficult out there for people, and I think that com- compassion is important because tomorrow you might be relying on someone's compassion, and I think that for everybody to understand that is a way like we're all that we're all in this together, hopefully, is a way that we can reverse some of the things that have been happening. Absolutely, yeah, and you just see it time and time again that when, and I don't, and I don't want anyone to think, you know, I'm a complete bleeding heart. I, I always call myself. A I am. I, I always say I'm a bleeding heart conservative <laughs> is what I always tell people that sure. like, I'm a bleeding heart conservative. Whereas I think we should help as much people as we can, but I think you should be able to keep your money too. You know, I like, that's, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm uh, probably like most people my age actually. But uh, yeah, it's just, it's been really eye-opening getting to meet people. I mean, I went to a baby shower a couple weeks ago just to give you an idea of – well, I mean, not, not that you don't know. I don't mean it that way. But, yeah, but I went to a baby shower, and it was predominantly black. I, I think my wife and I were the only white people there, which was not a big deal. It was just somebody from work. And I met this girl I work with, her mother, and met her. And you know, I just gave her a hug and talked. Well, this is a couple weeks later now. My buddy at work was telling me, she said, yeah, my mom said that you guys were just the nicest white people she has ever mm-hmm. met. And I was like, and so like she started laughing when she told me and I was, I, I didn't find it that funny. It, it, I didn't understand like, oh, this isn't common occurrence for people just to talk to you like a normal person. That, yeah. it, you know, it, it, that's, and that to me is disgusting. That's a world that we live in. It's tough, and I think that the internet can be the best and worst thing for this, right? Because it can expose you. You said like they didn't have the internet, like referring to earlier generations, and it it can expose you to things. Like this is what college was for. It makes me sad that fewer people are going to go to college because it's more expensive. And really, I get it. Like if you're a kid now and you say I'm 
I'm, I have an idea of where I want my life to go and I don't think I need to go to college. I'd say good for you, yeah. honestly, because who knows what degrees are even worth now. But you will miss the experience of when you're in college, you will be exposed to people that you probably will not encounter again for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. you're all together. On, I went to Syracuse. You're all together on one campus. You know, the 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 drama crew, the architecture, the architecture people, mm-hmm. the the you know, and the engineers, the the jocks, you know, the wrestlers, the football players, the the basketball players, people from, uh, I you know, I remember it was great getting exposed to all the slang from the East Coast. You know, okay. um, people coming up from Philly and D.C. and New York, um, just all like a cultural uh, blender. Yeah, and, and we we can get ex- exposed to that. Twitter's fantastic for that. Mm-hmm. You can just follow some people on Twitter, and you know, black Twitter is fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, And and but also you can use it to insulate yourself. You can use it to surround yourself. And I probably do a little bit of both. Um, but I think that what what you brought up is really and it, I, it reminds me of what I was saying earlier about growing up in New Mexico as a, as a kid and and not be and not being in a majority white place because you said something about being a white person in an area where in a situation where the only white people it's eye-opening because if you're not white you you've have been in a lot of those situations already mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like yeah the only middle eastern person in in the room you talk about being in detroit like dearborn so that's another yeah. way that you're, no, that you're normalized when you hear people talking about muslims and things like that well you have a robust the most robust muslim community in the united states and everybody in detroit can tell you like you guys are people are kind of crazy right now about this yeah and, they are you, so it's a very important experience, and I say this as somebody who knows this but doesn't do it often enough, to take yourself out of your comfort zone. And then, as you said, like just be open to it because you see that you change someone's mind. like You change their heart in a way when they said this experience was was notable. It was remarkable that, that this white couple came to our shower, and we were just folks. And the more that we can do that, the more that we can get back to that. And I've participated in Facebook. Those of you that are my Facebook friends know I participate in – especially over the years, like plenty of divisive politics. I like to say what I'm not about too. Mm-hmm. But when it gets down to the ground human to human level, we really are not that different. And I still have a dream. My other dream, other than being play-by-play announcer for the Pittsburgh Pirates, was to start <laughs> the revolution. And I think in this case, it's a revolution of the heart and mind where we see that all of us just trying to make it have that in common. And we can go back to bickering like relatives about everything after we get take care of this, where we restore the power balance back to the people, back to the workers, back to the folks that make this thing go, and not to the people who have convinced everybody that they deserve to capture and hoard all the value that we on the ground level are creating. All values created by consumers and workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, now yeah. you're really going to get me going. No, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you're you're talking to a guy where we, we had contract negotiations in 2014 and our and our CEO took home $72 million bonus and then was squabbling over like 40 cent raise or something like that. And we were like, dude, come on. Like, what are you serious? Like you took home that much money and you won't talk about it. Like we ended up getting a raise and it was no big deal. But the point is, it's like, how much do you need? And like I said, do to deserve that cure cancer. Like what could you do to deserve $72 million? what, What work is so valuable that you deserve that? But even on the other side of it though, I do think I go, Hey, he should be able to keep a lot of his money. He should, but within reason, I mean, there's just, there's a reasonable amount. And I don't know if it's, it's weird because I'm just, I've always been so conservative with my, with my, you know, my opinions, but 
just recently with the money situation, you look at it and it just seems insane. Like no one's paying attention. <laughs> like it's almost yeah, like yeah, it's a video, it's video game like pinball machine numbers now, and it gives people the ability to like you know the dude from Facebook that like funded Gawker Media's meltdown. Whether you think Gawker Media is a good thing or not, individual citizens should not be able to bring down like what a media outlet with yeah. with their lawsuits. Yeah. And it gives a it gives a, a, a um a dangerous amount of power to individuals, and I think that um, the other problem is I'm sure you see this out there, David. Every day, somebody is saying my, you know, someone that works with me or a relative or a friend of a relative or something like that needs to raise money to stay alive. Basically, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, yeah. like, we've gone off the rails when we have the, one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest, countries still in the world. Who knows? A lot of wealth is illusory now, where people have to beg, like, I'm gonna die if I don't get these treatments. Please help me. Something went wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and well, just to talk about, I mean, that's somewhere in the world, but even here in the States where we have so much wealth where I can throw, I like, I choose not to eat the bun on my burger, you know, like <laughs> that that kind yeah. of world. Uh, the play that we have wealth with the healthcare costs is, is I actually had a guy on my podcast a couple weeks ago and he was talking about the healthcare costs and actually like, what the actual cost? He's a doctor out of California, and not, he's like a MD, like a general practitioner, mm. not like a. Well, I mean, whatever. Any, anybody, anybody's medical persuasion is fine with me, whatever. But yeah. uh, um, and just to hear him talk about how a lot of the procedures that we have today were created in the 1970s. He said, "There's no technology in the world that was created in the 1970s that's still expensive to run today." And I, and when you think about it like that, you're like, "Oh, they just keep costs high." On yeah. stuff because then, if if a guy breaks his arm and then has to miss work and he doesn't have a union like I do and has to miss work, so I mean sorry, you don't you don't they can just fire you. I mean some states yeah. they can just fire you. That's it's just kind well, of crazy. It's we're entering a sort of dangerous phase now where nobody is really creating value. I say this as somebody who makes fantasy football podcasts mm-hmm. and, and and David has assured me we will talk some football. Um, but uh, but uh, I, you see where my mind goes, by the way, r- right to this, you know, the revolution again. Yeah. Sports, the revolution. Um, but you see a dangerous phase we've entered in our economy where people aren't creating. You talk about the plant closing again with, with where I grew up. It was the mill or the mine closing. People aren't creating value anymore, really. What people are doing is trying to situate themselves in between buyers and sellers and extracting value. Uber, Lyft, and so on and so forth. Surge pricing, you know, delivery services, um, and then in healthcare, they they have it down to a science. Yeah. I, mean, I don't I don't think that insurance companies used to uh, employ attorneys and people to find reasons to deny claims because because cl- denying claims increases profit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's now a game. You're trying to game the system to extract as much of that profit as you can. For yourself, and and we've gotten way off of the mission of these institutions. You know, insurance used to insurance is basically socialism. It used to be a decent deal. We all throw our money in, and when something bad happens, if you need it, you can take what you need. Mm-hmm. And now it's become this profit-driven thing to try to skim as much as you can and keep the whole thing from falling apart. And um, you know, just even in the last three or four years, what I'm seeing, you know, insurance plans that cost like six hundred dollars a month. How would you even, unless you have a chronic health condition, how do you even spend six hundred dollars a month out of pocket well, yeah. on healthcare? Yeah. But but then, like you said, you break your arm or something like that, and then you see the costs 
like a hospital stay if you have to pay for it yourself. And that's how you get to people begging. Yeah. And so it's it's a and, and let me say this as part of my I'm 40 so I can't run for president now as part of my bloom, that's true. bloom in 2020. We're gonna work 2020 vision. Getting the, yeah. the, the presidential campaign is starting now. Um, and I will just say this right now because you're giving me thank you by the way, David. You're so gracious. You're letting me go on and on and giving me a platform as a compulsive talker to say whatever I want to say. I. Sigmund, I'll, I'll let you go for as long yeah. as you like. Yeah, I, no, I, no, I, it's good. It's good. Yeah. Really and truly, if I can say something clear to, to everybody, it, universal. I know. And uh, look, there's a. You talked about being like more. I can tell you know more of a maybe not small government conservative, but at least we need to keep these things in check. And I can see where even as a bleeding heart liberal, that government has become sort of sentient. And parts of government are employing other parts of government, like you know, police doing more tickets to create revenue yeah. for city. Go- this this is a problem, and I yeah. will admit this is where my bleeding heart liberal like government is the is the counterbalance. Government can become the thing that starts to devour us for profit prisons and all the ways that profit making ventures have co opted our government to enrich themselves. So government is kind of neutral, and if the wrong if it's serving the wrong people or the wrong goals. It can be bad, but look, we have no other choice. Universal healthcare. We have no other choice. Do you um, think? Do you think this country could sustain it with so many people? I mean, well, I th- I think that it could. I hope but. that a few states. I know Vermont was going to try, and it hasn't gone well. Um, I want to say maybe Colorado might be looking well, at dipping their toe into it. If we can do it on a state level, I want to Oregon maybe. I don't know. If we can do, if we can get a model on a state level, because it might be a, a thing of a scale of numbers. But we have so many layers in the healthcare system now. You know, again, like claims and insurance. I don't know what the percentage is. Like thirty or forty percent of the healthcare industry is the insurance part of it, yeah. and we can still keep Cadillac plans. You know, again, going back to first class justice. Hey, you can still have first class healthcare in the post universal healthcare world. Um, but for everybody else, there should be places you can go and and if you're sick, here's how I'll put it. Again, for the 2020 campaign. Nobody deserves to be sick. We know this, right? Like yeah. intuitively, we have doctors and nurses in jails. Even if you're a serial killer, if you're sick, you don't you, you deserve to get to see like as a human being, almost like a basic human right. Yes, healthcare is like a basic human right. We get that. Um, but I think that there's there's fear. You're right about the numbers thing, and I think that there still probably is a little more political will that it needs to be presented in a way to show people that even if you're into like the economy and growing the economy. Healthy people work more productively. They buy more things. It's good for us to have a robust national healthcare system where people can have preventative care. Because now you have, even when you have insurance, where people aren't have insurance, but they aren't going to go. I don't know about you all out there, but I've seen in the last year or two, things that used to have a $20 copay are now 100 or $120. I get a bill for it. Yeah. So now you're not going to you have insurance. You're not going to the doctor because you know it's going to cost you a hundred or a hundred and twenty dollars, or yeah. if you have to have something done like five hundred dollars. Yeah. So even insurance is keeping people from seeking healthcare. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you. I I think a, a large a large part of the problem is the costs involved. I think that the costs are inflated because, and I only think this because I talked to this doctor and I and I got really into what he was talking about and did my own research, you know, and I basically found that. Things don't cost as much as they say it does, and the hospital bills a certain amount because if someone has insurance, they know the insurance will cover that a certain amount. Yeah. So that when they bill too much, that all the weight basically just comes onto the patient. So if they know that they're going to pay six thousand dollars for an MRI, then we'll bill them seventy three hundred because we know for sure we'll at least get 
around six thousand, but but if they go too low, then they'll only get that amount. Does that make sense? That's that's yeah. basically what David Belk was talking about. And I think that if I, I don't understand why healthcare is bought it isn't bought like a cheeseburger or like right. any anything else. It doesn't like, right. like if I I have car insurance, right? And if they're assholes, I can just leave them and go somewhere else. Right. Like you should have the same option with if my wife's having a baby and the doctor wants to make a decision and I don't like that decision, I should be able to like that say I don't want this, I want this guy and this is how much he costs per hour. You know, like you should know that stuff up front. Almost like kind of like getting a lawyer. So you know yeah. how much everything costs. I mean, how, how many times have you been to the hospital? Do you, have you ever asked what is this going to well, cost? I know there's been stuff written about this. It's a very unique position for the consumer because you're not in a position to like shop around when yeah. you're seeking healthcare at the hospital. And even the relationships you have with your healthcare providers, it, it's it's um, an uneven marketplace too, where you don't get to have all the information about like, what different doctors will charge for different procedures. I mean, it's, you run around just trying to find stuff that's in your network. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, it's it's a very uneven marketplace, and that's taken advantage of. Um, yeah. that's the thing though, and this is what I was talking about with the dangerous area our economy has gone into, where it's just a game now. You're just mm-hmm. it's just there's a great Errol Morris documentary, or they're all great. All the Errol Morris documentaries are great. Um, it's um, McNamara, Robert McNamara, the, the um, who was you know part of the Vietnam War, and he even shows the presage is this, where I think he was uh, working for like General Electric or, or GM, I don't remember which one, and he, whatever he was. This is back in the 40s. He was a he was a young rising star in the corporate world with his work with numbers analysis, mm-hmm. and and they hired him. In World War II, I think to do the same thing, but just for like increasing the efficiency of their firebombing. Like oh, wow. making instead of the numbers being about profit, the numbers were about the number of people they would kill or the number of targets that would be destroyed. And it, and again, it gives you that sense of distance from what you're doing. And now in our economy, there's all this extraction of profit, and it's making some stuff really hard on people. It's all being accumulated upward, but it's all just a game, right? It's all just numbers. Like you said, the, the wealth becomes absurd. It's all just numbers on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. But, but somewhere we have to replace that value, and you know we're seeing, like I said, it's so hard out there. Well, I really have, I really, I guess this, we, we may retitle this like the, the opening speech for the 2020 presidential campaign. You're, I, being, you're being very indulgent. I, I think, I think that if if you just would hurry up and run this year, you'd have a shot. I think. I think you if know you a third name on the ballot. It might, you know. <laughs> Just, you know, seriously, if somebody could actually – I'm not the person to do that. It'd have to be somebody who already has recognition. If somebody there, – there is probably somebody out there that could do it. Maybe maybe it's LeBron James right yeah, now. He I, has a lot of haters. I, uh, I don't know. But somebody who could capture – you're right. Somebody who could capture the moment, like Brewster's Millions. I'm going way back. Richard, great old Richard Pryor movie from the yeah. 80s where he gets everyone to vote none of the above. Um, a, a great film. Uh, uh it, it, you know, it, there is. You're right. There's an opening for somebody to capture the 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 imagination of the American people right now. Uh, I'm afraid I'm not that person. But in the next four years, I'm going to try to become that person. Well, probably not. I'll still just talk about football and go off extemporaneously when nice people like yourself let me. I can imagine the State of the Union address where you just stop and you're like, and I think Matt Forte is going to have a great year this year. Yeah. First, let's get to the important things. Le'Veon Bell, if you take him in the first round, you have to take D'Angelo Williams in the 10th round. You have to. You have to do it. We're not friends anymore if you don't take D'Angelo Williams. Take Le'Veon Bell in the first round, but take D'Angelo Williams too. Now let's move on to matters of national security. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I think that it would be respected, and you'd probably get a lot more 
viewers, really, if you, th- if you think about it. People might really tune in. They know that you're getting like fantasy like football it. advice. But. The wheels well, are turning. Since, uh, since, since we got there, and, you know, yeah. we got about 20 minutes left or so, we'll just we'll get, get into the football. I have yeah. to just quickly let you know, my buddies all wanted me to tell you, you guys have the best app. The Draft Dominator app oh. is the best app out there. It's, we all use it, and uh, I just... I. I'd mentioned yeah. one or two of them. Hey, Sigmund's coming on. What do you guys want? Do you guys want me to tell him anything or whatever? And they were like, "The app's great. Ask him. Just let him know that yeah. the app's amazing." So Simon great. Shepherd, I think he's at FBG Apps underscore Simon. Yeah. Um, he at the beginning, along with David Dodds, who's a true genius, the engine of football guys. I would say David Dodds is the engine of football guys at FBG Dodds, and uh, Joe is the mayor of football guys. Okay. And Simon. Uh, who was who was across the pond? Amazing the NFL interest and real passion uh, uh, in other countries. And you know, listeners, to, I, we have listeners to our show from all over the world. I've been on podcasts in New Zealand and Australia and Ireland. Okay. Um, Simon Shepard over in England was almost a one man show with David Dodds like guiding him and the two of them working together. And it's incredible. It's incredible as someone who comes from IT. Um, you, you're lucky if you have like one person who can do graphics and understand presentation really well, one person who can code really well, and one person who understands like what the next thing coming up is. Mm-hmm. And those three people, if they can talk and work together, can make something that really works. Simon is like one person that's those three people. So I just got to give all kinds of props to Simon Shepard and David Dodds for his vision and his, his guiding that. And I just feel lucky because I get to talk and get to be part of this great community, and they're the ones who are actually the geniuses that are innovating. Okay. Well, yeah. So great, great app. Yeah. It honestly is. And also, just tidbit. Simon Shepard also will email you back instantly if you email him because I screwed up something with my app two years ago or something. I emailed him and he emailed me back in like a second and fixed my problem. So, props to Simon. Good good on him. But all right. So real quick, where do you think? Do you think? reasonable expectations for Arian Foster's land yeah. places. What, what do you think he could actually go? I mean, people are talking crazy, but if you had to narrow it down to like two or three teams top. Sure, no, and I think that we have basically, I think this is one of those cases where what we've heard reported uh, is in line with what's real here. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I think that we can narrow it down to three teams, and they've all been connected to them. Miami, New England, and Seattle. Uh with Miami, I think they're liking Jay Ajay more the more they see him. I think Ajay could be one of those picks that helps you win your league in the fifth or sixth round. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the chances there are diminishing. Um, with Seattle, I think there may be a little bit of waiting to see on Thomas Rawls. I think that they liked the way they had a veteran like Fred Jackson in this role last year as a, as a third down back, a receiving back. And that's basically what Arian Foster is at this point. Uh, and he would fit in you – know, they want to make CJ Precise that guy, but he's still raw. Uh, and then New England. And New England is the one, I think, if you're going to put a chip down, put it on New England. Mm-hmm. Every New England beat writer that has done those great uh, – this time in the calendar, isn't it fantastic how the football media during the time I've been doing this has evolved to give us 365 coverage? And oh, interesting yeah. and good coverage, great coverage. So there's been a lot of articles projecting the 53-man roster for teams from different beat writers. And in the New England one, they always say, but Arian Foster is still out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that we can start to connect the dots there. And their interest with uh, New England and Foster is real. I think he fits in terms of how they will bring in different personalities under their roof and they, they make them work. Like how would Martellus Bennett 
by the way, Tate Martell's been in the yes. last round this year. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Black Unicorn. Uh, so they make these personalities fit. He fits in what they need. And, and people say, what about Deion Lewis? Deion Lewis is still ma- a magnificent, beautiful player in the fourth or fifth round. I think he'll still have the same role he had last year. In the fourth or fifth round, you want Deion Lewis in your draft. If he mm-hmm. gets hurt again, he gets hurt again. He's basically worth a first or second round pick. We already saw that. So Arian Foster would just be – I think he might take away a little bit more of LeGarrette Blunt's maybe finisher carries. Um, m- maybe he would get a, uh, some more looks in the red zone. I think he would hurt Blunt more than uh, – they would. he would hurt Blunt more than uh, Foster. Foster would hurt Blunt more than Lewis. And the other thing about Blunt is he hasn't practiced yet. He's got this hip thing. So I think the Patriots are kind of playing a wait-and-see thing with Blunt and with Foster. But I think if we don't see Foster on one of those three teams, he might retire. I think that Foster's the kind of dude, much like Marshawn Lynch, this is my son, yeah. that when when it's not there for him, he's not going to keep playing because he doesn't know what to do. He knows what to do with himself. He's like a Ricky Williams kind of character in the sense that he's got a lot of other interests. He's got a lot of other stuff going on in his life. Yeah. So playing for New England, playing for Seattle makes sense. A winner, a chance to go to the Super Bowl. Um, if he doesn't get the offer he wants or they don't expect to use him or they're saying, like, you have to win your roster spot, and he might just be like, you know what? It's been a good career, and uh, it has been. Yeah. Helping him. He's been a, a – I love the nonconformists in the NFL, and I've been his success has been something to behold because, remember, he was undrafted. I think he was undrafted because of injuries and fumbles in his senior year. And he got injured at the Senior Bowl. He was looking good at the Senior Bowl during practice week until he got hurt. Mm-hmm. And I do think that because of his personality, his coaches wouldn't go to bat for him. And in the draft process, now I don't know this. I'm not reporting this. Yeah. Okay? I'm speculating because of his personality. Um, and when your coaches don't go to bat for you during the draft process, it's a red flag to teams. But mm. he ended up working out, except in week 15 when he fumbled. And I told everyone to play him uh, in his first year. I think it was his first year. They all lost because of me. So. Yeah. Well, I mean – but how many times have you gotten them there, Sigmund? How many times? Yeah. Well, I just hope I make it entertaining and enjoyable, and we, sh- we share the ride, even if at the end we're crying, as Denny Carter would say, the shower cry. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so Denver receivers. Mm-hmm. Is this – okay, so last year I rostered Cody Latimer for oh, about 13 weeks I'm sorry. from the beginning of the season because I – you know, I listen, and I, and I, right. I watch it, and then – it just it still hasn't happened. No. So what what do you what are your opinion about you know Latimer and Sanders and Thomas? Sure, sure, sure. Well, we have to diminish expectations for Denver's pass offense. Um, and I think last year is probably closer to the ceiling than the mean for them because it's going to be a very conservative team, very very conservative. Mark Sanchez or Trevor Simeon is going to start Week One. You have a defense, maybe without Von Miller, we'll see. Uh, you have a solid running game. Uh, you have Gary Kubiak's offense, which is highly structured, and you want to take the guesswork out. You, you know, you want Mark Sanchez throwing like 25 times in a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to diminish expectations for Sanders. You have to diminish expectations for Thomas. Uh, you know, if, if Demarius Thomas is still hanging around in the third round, and I'm deciding between, say, Randall Cobb and Demarius Thomas, now I'm looking at Demarius Thomas. He's still got 100 balls last year. He was still basically a wide receiver one last year. Mm-hmm. Sanders is going to be more boom bust. He's I'd like to have him more as my wide receiver three maybe around the sixth round, although I like running backs in the sixth round a lot this year. Mm-hmm. Then you get to Latimer. I'll try to set the record straight on Latimer a little bit. Because I love, obviously, I you know, yeah. I did it. I picked the one receiver out of that group that wasn't going to hit. You got bloomed. I, I, bloomed, <laughs> you got him. Bloomed. I bloomed him. <laughs> and you could go back and watch him in Indiana, and he was a tremendous receiver. I think what happened is, he by his own admission, um, in his first year, he was kind of told it was, you know, there wasn't going to be that much opportunity. I think he didn't put him, apply himself the way he could have. And then I think that he was on the wrong side of Peyton Manning. Mm-hmm. And with Peyton Manning, it's very simple. You know, you either do it Peyton's way or you're just not going to play. 
And I think that it hurt his confidence. I think that he can still come on and be the third wide receiver. I think in your dynasty league, I would hold him on the end of your bench to see what happens. The talent is fantastic. Natural physical talent is amazing. And you can go back and read stuff like um, longtime beat writers for the Broncos like Jeff Legwold. We're watching him in training camp in his rookie year and saying, oh, my, this Latimer guy, he's going to do something for this team. Mm-hmm. But, but if Peyton Manning doesn't trust you, if you're not where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, and then you're on top of that not really applying yourself, um, that's a hard hill to get over, and that's how Bubba Caldwell plays ahead of you. He is the clear number three receiver. He will get a chance to show what he has, but for dynasty terms, he's still more of a long-term prospect because of the Denver offense being boring now, um, and he still has two very good receivers in front of him. But we will see what Sanders – I think Sanders is a free agent next year, which uh, he'll probably get paid a lot, and it seems to me like Denver would want to move on from him. So don't give up on Latimer and dynasty leagues yet. Okay. And yeah, I, I was just going to touch on Demarius Thomas. Demarius Thomas, to me, and I'm not any anywhere near the analyst you you are, obviously, but to me, seems quarterback proof. Like it that yeah. that won't really matter that much. I mean, he he did just fine with ice water in there, and it's, mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not concerned about him at all. I would definitely I like him in the third as well. That that's quite all right. Um, all right, two more quick ones, and then Please, yeah. we'll get we'll get you out of here. Uh. Matt Forte, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, I, I think about, you know, situations a lot because game film, I, I think, is probably the most important thing. But then after that, situations. And I I argued myself a lot about Matt Forte because he could be going down, but he's got pretty good running backs behind him. But I liken it to the Jamal Charles situation. Do, do you think that that's, if that's accurate? Right, right, right. Well, okay. So I, I would still have Charles like two to three rounds ahead of Forte because, mm-hmm. first of all, even when he went down last year, Charles was performing at an elite level. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah. And not just numbers, but the play matched. He was still fantastic. Uh, we, he is a Hall of Fame-level talent. Okay, um, when, we, when we project uh, the deterioration of talents when they're that high level, we always want, I want to be, I'd rather be, so you know what they're saying, I'd rather be a year early than a year late. No, no. When it comes to talents like Charles and Peterson, Brandon Marshall, and so on, I'd rather be a year late. I'd rather continue to hang my hat on those guys where people are, are discounting them based on age, waiting for that drop-off year. Frank Gore, even this year, who I know he wasn't worth a third-round pick last year. I think he'll be worth a seventh-round pick this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that Forte, while he was solid for the Bears last year, was not playing at the level that Charles was playing at. Now, Charles is coming back from an ACL. Also, I think that Ware and West are competent backs, and I think they were productive in that system, but I didn't see anything truly special from either of them. I saw them as both, especially with their complementary skill sets, a a nice running back by committee, and I think teams that have other things they can rely on in their offense can be just fine with running back by committee. An offensive line play also factors in there. Um, But Jamal Charles is still the kind of player that if he's on the field and he's right, you're going to give him 20 or 25 touches a game. Uh, where and West might sprinkle in a little bit more, but you want to win games. Uh, I also think, as a quick aside, that the Chiefs' offense might be a lot better this year than we're expecting because Justin Houston, I expect to be out for at least the first six weeks, maybe as much as the first nine or ten weeks, maybe even most of the season. Maybe even when he returns in November or December, he's just a role player. And we can go back to 2013, the year that the Chiefs, defense was incredible. Anybody who had the Chiefs defense picked them up in week one or week two that year and just rode them. I think they were facing like backup quarterbacks every week. And Tom Bahali and Houston were just devouring the competition. 
uh, Houston got an elbow injury, and immediately Alex Smith became a good fantasy quarterback because they were playing more wide open games. Oh, so okay. I think that, I think that was the year that um, that was the year that uh, Smith and Luck had that shootout in the playoffs. Remember, uh, like forty one thirty eight or something like that. And I think that Smith might have thrown five touchdowns in that game. Yeah, that was the, yeah. So, so yeah. It, the the complexion of the offense can change because of that. Justin Houston's that good. Um, so I think that can help you with Charles because Charles is going to be the best receiving back out of the backfield. And I, I just I've had Charles like help me win titles. Like he was helping win weeks for me last year in 2015. He was a magic golden ticket to the finals with his five touchdown game. Uh, where Matt Forte is solid but not spectacular. And here's the other thing. Bilal Powell was really good at the end of the year last year. Mm-hmm. I encourage people to go back and watch. He found something else in his game at the end of the year last year. And I think they gave Forte like six or seven million guaranteed over the next two years. So they plan on Forte being part of the team for the next two years. But they still gave Powell like three years, 11 million. I don't remember what the guaranteed money was, four or five million. They weren't that far apart. Mm-hmm. So if we're saying so, money, money talks. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I mean, I just... For yeah, comparison's for sake, comparison's let me sake, step though, on yeah. Like, Ware and West got, like, Paul Trecon. I think Ware and West guaranteed money was, like, a million or something. I, I, I don't have it in front of me. But it wasn't – it wasn't – it showed you the regard the teams hold the players in. And I think that, w- that Powell was good, and I think the Jets see him. They've kept him now twice as he sit free agency. They like him. I, I mean, that would that would make sense. And, yeah, and I remember what you're saying, because, like, Chris Ivory, what, got a little banged up at the end of the year, and they, mm-hmm. they were playing him less downs – or. Yeah, and then yeah, Powell looked great. But okay, um, and then just just to touch on yeah. that as well, do you think anybody would be crazy for taking Jamal Charles over Le'Veon Bell this year? Because so I just want to argue the position really go quick. Ahead, please, because I I'm stuck on. So I said this a couple weeks ago. My friends laughed at me, but but I'm stuck on this problem where. Gene Bramble talked about it, but really brought it up at first. And I looked at I looked at knees, and, I, and and the fact that he's coming back from two different ligament injuries is incredibly concerning for me. Mm-hmm. And so I think Jamal Charles might be the better pick because just because a guy tore his ACL a second time, right. I don't think it's this. I don't think it's the same one. No, it's not. So so just because that happened, it's like those are not related to me. They're yeah. they're separate. And do you think that that's a crazy? Thought. No, I, well, I think what you're what you're really isolating here, David, is right on, which is the Jamal Charles situation is one, and Dr. Gene has, has fleshed this out too, uh, the way skillfully uh, and, and very precisely as he always does, that the Charles situation is not concerning. Okay, there's no outward sign that it's concerning. It's like you said, he's now granted the recuperative powers of a 25 to 26 year old body, the recuperative powers of a 29 year old body are maybe a little bit different, but still, he's been through this before. He, you know, he, 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 we should count on him getting like, as as compared to say to someone like Kelvin Benjamin, where we're not one hundred percent sure with a player like him because he was a one year wonder in college and they had like some weight issues and things like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Jamal Charles, we should just pencil in with the exception of that Westware. I looked it up by the way; they each got one point six million guaranteed. Okay, Westware over like a three year deal. Um, so other than the Westware, maybe a little more work than they've gotten in the past. That's the only concern for Charles. Okay. Mm-hmm. With Le'Veon Bell, um, there's definitely concern that he might start the season in a reduced role or might start the season even on the PUP. We just don't know yet. He may go out there and take the field week one, but I think the Steelers know that D'Angelo Williams is not just a backup running back now. I think you're going to see more D'Angelo Williams than you saw last year when Bell was on the field. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I think what I think you're right to basically isolate that and say Bell uh, gives me the heebie-jeebies. Charles, I I, I know he's going to be Jamal Charles this year. That being said, the Steelers running back was running back one last year. Didn't matter who it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bell was a league winner in 2014. DeAndre Williams was a league winner in 2015. We will project the Steelers running back as a top three running back every week, unless we get down to like Fitzgerald Toussaint again or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you take Le'Veon Bell in the first round in, in PPR leagues, because the other thing going on here is Le'Veon Bell might catch if he st- on a per game basis. Okay, he might catch like six or seven balls a game. He should actually, because you have Antonio Brown and you have well Ladarius Green if he can stay healthy. Marcus Wheaton, if he can up his game. Sammy Coates, if he can start to develop. So really, Le'Veon Bell, it becomes kind of like how it was with Julio Jones and Devontae Freeman last year. Like These are the top two targets. Mm-hmm. So, so Le'Veon Bell is going to be, his weekly ceiling in PPR League especially is going to be you know, 25, 30, 35 points a game routinely as long as Roethlisberger's out there. Remember, a lot of the games that Bell played last year, Roethlisberger didn't even play. Mm-hmm. Steel- That's a good point, yeah. And, and there was like one half of play that the Steelers had with Bell Roethlisberger, Bryant, and Brown all year. Now, obviously, they have zero this year because of Bryant. Yeah. But still, if they can just have Bell, Brown, and Roethlisberger on the field for most of those games, that offense is going to get to a new level. So if you take Bell in the first round and D'Angelo Williams in the 10th round, and you never even have to use D'Angelo Williams, well, you got your first-round value out of Bell. And if you do have to use D'Angelo Williams, you got a lot more than 10th-round value out of him. We know that D'Angelo Williams could be a league winner. Whether you take Bell in the first round or not, you should, this is part of that presidential stump speech, remember? That's how important this is. Yeah, yeah. So, you, so, so would, I, think what you're, I think your position might be the correct one, which is if I'm reading between your lines, you're saying don't even take Bell in the first round because it's just too iffy. And then, I would, and then we'd say just take D'Angelo Williams. I, see, that's what I was saying. I was like, maybe I'm being incredibly hard-headed because I'm thinking I don't I, – I just I, – I have a lot of concern that he won't play past like the fourth week. Yeah. <laughs> like Le'Veon Bell, so that's just – So but, you should be taking D'Angelo Williams in every single – there's no excuses, Dave. If I see one of your rosters and someone got sniped D'Angelo Williams, because you, you're telling me you don't believe Bell's I know. play. If you really believe the words you're saying, then D'Angelo Williams should be a priority for you in every single draft. You now know I have to cut out like a minute of this podcast so none of my friends listen to <laughs> <laughs> So So I can actually draft him in the 10th round because they're like, we know Piper's going for him in the 7th. We gotta take, yeah, because yeah. that will definitely—they're those guys. So, cool. Fair and love and fantasy football. Absolutely. All right. Well, sick. Thanks so much for coming yeah. on, man. I I really appreciate it, and you're just such a great guy, such a nice guy. The On the Couch is one of my favorite podcasts ever. I mean, it's just—it's so good. It's a joy, really. And to, and I know because you'll have some overlap. Well, you're one. Well, you're one of the listeners. Um, and to all the people out there, um, I just I love to serve, and I consider it a privilege. And I'm very lucky that doing what I just like to do is something that people like, and and we can all uh, make each other happy. And um, I appreciate you giving me this opportunity because I got a lot of things to say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I got a lot to say. I got a lot on my mind, David. Yeah, yeah. And, yes, uh, no, it's it's beautiful, and um, I I just I I think that the podcasting, like you were talking about, listening to podcasts you know, five or six hours a day because of your job. It really, like I always say at the end of the show, like sometimes I'll say like, you're letting me inside your head. Yeah, certainly. And then each other's heads can be a good place to be. And I hope we can, can can need to make it a good place to be and create relationships that will last our, our lifetime. And that's really what it's still about is human connections. And podcasting is a very human, a very human media. 
You know, it's not like radio or TV where you're creating a polished product to try to convey something. Again, like we're talking about marketing yourself. We're not marketing ourselves on these shows. We're just hanging out just and, uh, it's, it's good. It's good. I look forward to all of our interactions in the future and, um, I, I love the opportunity. The best thing someone can ask me is, what's your opinion? So, yeah. Like, little hearts come above my head. Like, oh, let me tell you. So thank you, David. Wonderful. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for coming on, man. And, uh, I don't know. I'll be in. I'll be in touch. Let you know when it comes out. Yeah. Or so stay in touch, man. Cool. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Take care. Peace out.